Chicago, Illinois, Sunday, November 22nd, 1987. As Middle America was winding down late in the evening and staring at their television sets in a semi-catatonic state, empty Budweiser cans and Doritos bags piled up on their coffee tables as content such as football highlights and talking heads who instructed them on what to be angry about next flashed onto the screen as they vainly attempted to forget about the inescapable week of wage slavery that was set to begin the very next morning. What they saw beam into their television sets instead would send shockwaves throughout the television broadcasting community and angry locals would take to the streets and call for the blood of those responsible for this heinous interruption. Welcome back to episode 10 of Super Mystery Bros, the podcast where we only talk about the world's biggest and hugest mysteries in the universe. My name is Nate, and with me today as my co-host is Kyle, and we thank you for tuning in to what's been called the least popular podcast on the so-called intellectual dark web. Kyle, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Nate. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming back on. Hey, man, my pleasure. So before we begin, I've got an important question to ask you, man. Yeah, shoot. What can people do to assist us in our dark and dangerous descent into the unknown? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I wasn't ready for this one. Well, listeners can leave us a rating and review. You can uh, tell your friends about us. It'd be great. Spread the word. You could also leave us a voice message on either the link at the bottom of the episode description or on a brand new shiny fucking website yeah so um we've got a brand new website we finally got one you can go to https colon slash slash www.supermysterybrospodcast.com we're gonna have some some special stuff on there actually and there's actually a voice message link on there that you don't have to sign up for spotify or anchor to use you can just be an anonymous person and Send us a voice message through there if you want to. Check it out. It's really cool if you've got time. Real quick before we begin uh, on our episode, I've got to beg shamelessly here for our listeners to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify mainly, but also any other app that supports ratings and reviews because it's the only way that this show is going to be able to grow. And without listeners, we're just kind of talking to ourselves. So please, if you've got an Apple device, go onto the app and leave a rating and review there. Because so far, we've only got one review. We're not begging for your money here. We just want something that takes a moment of your time. And it's completely free to do. And it would just help us out tremendously. Um, but if you don't have Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts, 
you can go on Podcast Addict and CastBox. I think that those two also supports reviews. So if you're listening on any of those, please do us a solid. But Apple Podcasts would be the best one to do it on to help us out. All right, Kyle, you know, are you right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, just talking to ourselves isn't so bad. I mean, I talk to myself all the time because, you know, from time to time, I need professional advice. <laughs> Sorry. Dumb joke that's been going around the work site. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad, man. It was pretty bad, but it came to my head and I couldn't just sit with it. Had to let it out. <laughs> All right, man. Are you ready to get into this mystery? I'm ready, Nate. Chicago, also known as the Windy City. It's been called the Detroit of Illinois. Its name is derived from an Algonquin word for onion field and is now the third largest city in the United States, nestled between the Midwest and the Great Lakes region, on the shores of Lake Michigan. Home to such celebrated sports teams as the Chicago Cubs, who have played more games than any other team in Major League Baseball, the Chicago Bears, who have been in existence for over a hundred years, and the Chicago Bulls NBA team, which was on fucking fire in the 1990s, turning players such as Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman into household names. If you're not the type who enjoys drinking piss beer and screaming at a ball game at a sports bar while wearing another man's jersey, no problem. Chicago has much more to offer. Since its founding in 1977, the Chicago Marathon has become one of the world's top five largest marathons and has been home to many world records including, but not limited to, the renowned distinction of being the world's most confusing marathon, as it's impossible to know which gunshot is the starting gun. The second tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, the Willis Tower, or the tower formerly known as the Sears Tower, stands as a grim reminder of how far the mighty can fall, and how hard Sears CEO Eddie Lampert sat back and did nothing while his corporation slowly decayed into oblivion. Last but not least, Chicago is also locked in a decades-old heated battle with New York over which city makes the best pizza. Countless bar fights, internet arguments, and allegedly even murders have happened over this very age-old debate, as some feel that the Chicago deep dish style pizza is superior to the thinner, hand-tossed pizza of New York, or vice versa. Locals of both cities are extremely defensive when it comes to their pizza, so it's best not to disagree with a local unless you want to get stabbed with a broken beer bottle or get shot. The mid-1980s. In a time where MTV ruled the airwaves and was the undisputed cultural heavyweight champion of music and pop culture television in the U.S. and beyond, many competitors strived to ride its coattails, but achieved little more than basking in its shadow. However, in the spring of 1985, a fresh take on futuristic dystopian satire took the English-speaking world by storm. Channel 4, a free-to-air television station in the U.K., aired a movie entitled Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, which was a story that satirized the media and corporate greed as seen through the eyes of a truly special and unique character, Max Headroom. The movie is set in a near-future dystopia where global corporations control all media and humanity is addicted to dozens of TV channels. The story follows a man named Edison Carter, who, while working as a journalist for the mysterious Network 23, 
discovers that the network executives created a form of subliminal advertising known as quote-unquote blipverts that could actually kill people. While fleeing from enemies inside of a parking garage, Carter crashes his motorcycle headfirst into a barrier that reads Max Headroom 2.3 meters. The network, desperate to maintain its ratings with its star reporter, enlists the help of a hacker to download Carter's mind and create a virtual version of him. However, things don't quite go smoothly, and the result is a stuttering, glitchy, and sarcastic character named Max Headroom, who takes inspiration from some of the worst tendencies of American television show hosts of the time, such as trying to appeal to youth culture while clearly being out of touch with it. The character was portrayed by Matt Frewer, an American-Canadian comedian, wearing heavy layers of makeup and prosthetics on his face and head while standing in front of a blue screen. The resulting character became iconic of the 1980s aesthetic. Max Headroom even became the spokesman of the now infamous New Coke campaign with the catchphrase, quote, catch the wave, unquote. Now regarded as the worst decision that the Coca-Cola company ever made, changing the formula of the soft drink, which outraged Coke drinkers everywhere. The ensuing consumer shitstorm was so immense that the Coca-Cola company caved to the pressure and brought back the old formula, which is now known as Coca-Cola Classic. I did not know that's why they called it Coca-Cola Classic. Yeah, because before New Coke came out, it was just called Coca-Cola. But then um, they added Classic to the name to emphasize that it's not New Coke. I thought they did that just because they came out with so many oddball flavors that, hey, this is not a weird one. This is the original. (laughs) No, no, they did that because of New Coke, as, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, it it was never called Coca-Cola Classic until the new Coke came in. But anyway, the character took off and gained wide popularity and even his own television show where he would act as a VJ, interview celebrities and play music videos, which is now widely regarded as the first cyberpunk style television show. Despite being portrayed as a computer-generated TV personality, no actual CGI effects were used, aside from some geometric lines that moved in the background. It took several hours for comedian Matt Frewer to have all the makeup and cranium accessories applied to his head and face before he could become Max Headroom. As for the unusual name of Max Headroom, it was an inside joke that was very specific to Britain, as at the time, there was a huge firm that specialized in car parks, which had signs that read Max Headroom, 2.3 meters, or whatever the specific clearance was. Ironically, as a result of the popularity of the character, the company had to spend 3 million British pounds to change all of the signage to maximum height instead of Max Headroom. So let's just quickly describe what Max Headroom kind of looks like. And what his characteristics are. So he's, when you watch the TV show, he looks almost like a claymation figure or something, like almost like an action figure. He looks kind of shiny um, and like kind of. Pl- he, he definitely looks like an action figure because he, he, he wears this black, black and white suit and tie that just looks all plastic. So yeah, he's actually his his suit and tie. His suit and tie was actually made out of uh, fiberglass, if I'm not mistaken. Wild. Yeah. And then he's got kind of like um, blonde slick back hair that looks plastic. He's got these comically weird looking blue contact lenses. 
And then the background, he's just standing in front of the camera, basically. And the background are all these like moving geometric lines to make it look kind of like the 80s style cyber background. Yeah, I'm not sure how people ever got into that. I was I was watching clips of this guy for about five minutes and I started to get a migraine. I think this is <laughs> one of the first iterations of ultra annoying television. Yeah, and, yeah. and the character itself, you know, who it reminded me of a lot is Jim Carrey, both his voice and the mannerisms. Like, I feel like Jim Carrey could have played this guy if he wanted to. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. And then when he talks, it is that weird 80s computer style glitching, you know, where he just locks up, you know, like like a skip and repeat kind of thing as he yep. talks and sometimes they really overplay that that stuttering repeat glitch <laughs> yeah this character was a bit before our time but um yeah it's kind of interesting anyway yeah it was before our time but i think it was ahead of the time when it came out oh yeah for sure the year was 1987 the first ever simpsons cartoon was shown on the tracy ullman show in april of that year the show Full House debuted on ABC. U.S. President Ronald Reagan famously told Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, and just a month prior to our story tonight, the stock market had crashed by more than 22%. Yours truly was just a fetus in his mother's belly. The number one song of this day was I've Had the Time of My Life with Bill Medley and Jennifer Warnes. I can still remember that song echoing in the womb. On November 22nd of that year, Local Chicagoans were winding down on their couches as they tuned into WGN-TV's 9 p.m. evening broadcast and all seemed to be going normal. That is, until sportscaster Dan Roan began his segment about the Chicago Bears' 30-10 victory over the Detroit Lions earlier that day. As diehard Bears fans from all walks of life were drooling over the impressive plays covered in the highlights of the game, suddenly and without warning, Dan's broadcast began to flicker in and out until only darkness could be seen on the screen. Then, within seconds, all hell broke loose. Citizens all over the Chicago area then proceeded to collectively choke on their ice-cold cans of Schlitz. As they gasped for air, they were shocked and horrified by what they saw. Alright, so let's roll clip one, which was the audio from the first and original incident. Son, got a good break on it. Then they scored again at the Lions 31. Wayne Larravee called it like this on WGN Radio. And McMahon back to throw. Dumps it up the middle. Wide open to Cutting left to the 20, to the 15, to the 10, to the 5. McMahon and McKinnon 14-0 Bears. Then the defense, which hadn't put up a sack in 12 quarters, finally did. If you're wondering what's happened, <laughs> so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30-10 to 10 victory they had over Detroit today out at Soldier Field. 
We'll show you from the top and show you again the change that they made today on defense with Maurice Douglas as the nickelback. As the darkness disappeared from the screen, a man wearing a mask of the popular television character Max Headroom could be seen in front of a backdrop of what appeared to be a sheet of corrugated metal that was rotating back and forth, which mimicked the background of the popular television show. The masked man could be seen bobbing up and down as if laughing and mocking the viewers. Adding to the unsettling nature of the video was the fact that no audio could be heard other than a bunch of garbled static. The engineering nerds at WGN frantically hit all of the buttons and gizmos on their fancy electronic news boards before finally being able to change the frequencies that link the broadcast studio to the transmitter on top of the John Hancock building. But the damage had already been done. The individual was able to successfully hijack the broadcast for about 30 seconds. Upon getting control of the airwaves back, Dan Roan stated, quote, Well, if you're wondering what's happened, ha <laughs> ha, so am I, end quote. Dan Roan, visibly shaken, coped by laughing nervously and then blaming the computer for going wild. Despite the gravity of the situation, Dan Roan was able to regain his composure and restart the segment without further interruption. Studio engineering nerds immediately assumed that the hijacking was an inside job, they furiously began to search the building for the masked man, armed with baseball bats and nunchucks. Despite their overwhelming thirst for the blood of the perpetrator, they came up empty-handed. At the time, the studio was in chaos, and no one knew what had happened or how. Alright, so let's just break that down real quick. So, basically in the middle of Dan Roan, the sportscaster for WGN's segment on the, the Bears game that had happened earlier in the day... Um, during the highlights section, all of the sudden, it just some static appears on the screen and then it just black just turns to black. And then all of a sudden, some weird ass creepy video pops up on the screen with some guy in front of a like a corrugated metal background while wearing a, a suit and tie and a Max Headroom mask appears on the screen and he's kind of bobbing up and down. And it looks kind of like he's laughing, but there's no actual voice on the video. It's just it's just empty static before uh, the studio was able to switch frequencies and knock him off the air. All right, so let's let's continue with the story. Meanwhile, in the greater Chicago area, fat slobs sitting in their recliners were outraged. Many dusted the pizza crumbs from off their chest went over to their telephones, and called WGN to give them a piece of their mind. However, before the dust could even settle from the incident that occurred on WGN, terror would strike for a second time at 11.15 later that night. As fans of the television show Doctor Who were enjoying a rerun of what's widely considered to be one of the scariest episodes entitled Horror of Fang Rock, on WTTW, a PBS affiliate, they got more than they bargained for. Alright, so let's roll clip two, which is the audio of the second incident, which occurred on WTTW. Oh, 
episode, scanlines appeared on the screen before a familiar face appeared. The masked intruder had returned, but this time on a different television station and most notably with audio. Quote, that does it. He's a frickin' nerd. He, 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 end quote. The man can be heard saying in a highly garbled and distorted voice. He goes on to state that he thinks he's better than Chuck Swirsky, a local sports commentator, before calling him a quote-unquote frickin' liberal. At one point during the broadcast, he holds up a can of Pepsi and says, quote, catch the wave, end quote, before throwing it toward the camera, as some sort of sick joke, as that was the catchphrase of New Coke and not Pepsi. He can then be seen giving an obscene gesture to the camera using an object known as a marital aid, before then saying, quote, your love is fading, end quote. He hummed the tune of a 1950s cartoon Clutch Cargo before saying, quote, I still see the X, end quote, which contrary to popular belief, he does not say I stole CBS. Apparently, I still see the X is in reference to something in that cartoon. At one point, he moans and grunts and feigns defecation before saying, quote, oh, I just made a giant masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds, end quote in an epic slam to station WGN, which, and I'm not making this up, stands for World's Greatest Newspaper. He then holds up a glove and says, quote, my brother is wearing the other one, end quote, which is most probably a Michael Jackson joke. He proceeds to put the glove on his left hand before stating, quote, but it's dirty, looks like you got blood prints on it, end quote. In the final scene of the video, the man yells, quote, Oh no, they're coming to get me, end quote, while holding up the mask in front of the camera. The marital aide can be seen sticking out from the mouth of the mask as a figure on the right, presumably a woman wearing a French maid's outfit, stands by with a fly swatter in her hand. The man then moves off to the side of the camera with his pants pulled down, exposing the side of his ass cheeks. The woman says, quote, bend over, bitch, end quote, and begins to spank his ass with the fly swatter while the Max Headroom character screams, ah, make it stop, end quote. The video then fades out into static and the Doctor Who episode returned to the airwaves. So um, before we continue here, um, I actually looked up this cartoon, Clutch Cargo. I had never heard of it before doing research on this episode. And... Um, it is kind of a fucking oddball cartoon to like the theme song to be humming. Like, I just don't understand why it would, it would be clutch cargo, but it was kind of an interesting cartoon. I watched an episode of it. Um, you know what the animation reminded me of? It was kind of like, think of like Rocky and Bullwinkle animation, but yeah, 
the mouths of the characters actually it, like the mouths of the characters on that cartoon were like real people's mouths that were superimposed onto the cartoon. So it's kind of like that movie Thumb Wars. Do you remember when Thumb we watched Wars, Thumb Wars? Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, similar to that. Similar to that. So it's kind of weird. I'd never seen that. And I think for the, a 1950s cartoon, that's that's a pretty fucking high tech thing to be able to do. Did did you um happen to look up what network Clutch Cargo aired on? Maybe he was I can't remember whatever network that was. I don't know. Just a random thought that's something i didn't even think of but anyway let's move on unfortunately for wttw there were no engineers working at this hour of the night and the airwave pirate was able to hijack the broadcast without opposition however he decided to end the broadcast after only about a minute and a half after the part where he was getting his bare ass spanked by a fly swatter so just to dispel some myths here, some people think that this was broadcast live from wherever the Max Headroom guy was recording from, but this was actually a pre-recorded tape and then it was broadcast out. So the content on this tape was clearly what the guy intended to broadcast. So just to describe the incident, it's really bizarre. Um, it's very like the video itself is identical pretty much to the first incident except this time there's audio and um how would you how would you break this incident down man because it's so bizarre it's so bizarre it is it is super bizarre i mean you watch the whole thing and the only thing that comes to any sane human's head is what the fuck why you know to to what end did you do this except for maybe to show you can and I know you said that it is that this was all pre-recorded, right? Mm -hmm. So this guy yeah. knew what he was doing. But you watch the video and your first reaction is this guy has no idea what he's doing. He just hijacked airwaves and maybe didn't think he was even going to do it. And so has no idea where to go from here and just starts coming <laughs> up with random stuff. You yeah, know, it's kind like of it's it, kind of like a car, like a dog chasing a car and then the car stops and then the dog doesn't have any idea what it's going to do with the car. But he, I mean, it just looks that way, but he yeah. intended to broadcast specifically this, which I think is really interesting. Very. The reactions to the incident were largely negative, and many, re many local residents were outraged and called for the blood of those responsible. Two groups of people who were otherwise unlikely to see eye to eye in any other situation Football fans and Doctor Who nerds joined forces to express their primal rage and fury at those responsible, and each group vowed to, quote, bury that motherfucker, end quote. News reporters interviewed numerous local residents about the incident, with most being visibly shaken and angry. No, I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but that in the middle of the tape, it's going to be... You're going to have to tape over it. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a, uh, uh, a television broadcast. Just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. Okay. It's, not too it's not too bright, really. I got so upset that I wanted to bust a TV set. I really did. And then there was this snot-nosed little punk who had this to say about it. So what did you think about the whole thing? Very, very funny. Philip Bradford, an engineer with the Federal Communications Commission, when asked about whether or not the incident was serious, had this to say. It is serious. Later, 
When asked to clarify just how serious it was, Mr. Bradford had this to say. It is very serious. WTTW spokesman Anders Joachim said, quote, All in all, there are some who may view this mess as comical, but it is a very serious matter because illegal interference of a broadcast signal is a violation of federal law, end quote. Philip Radford would later go on to tell a reporter, quote, I would like to inform anybody involved in this kind of thing that there's a maximum penalty of $100,000, one year in jail, or both, end quote. Rob Strutzel, WGN-TV engineering nerd, went on to give this truly profound statement, quote, If someone wants to get in, into your house, they can find a way to do that. And I guess, likewise, if someone wants to interfere with your signal, they can find a way to do that, end quote. The FCC said that the quote-unquote pirates were able to use stronger microwave signals to override the television signals, which are transmitted from the Hancock and Sears Towers. So let me ask you here, Kyle. So I've got no clue about the technical side of how this could have been done. Like, the only thing that I know about microwaves is that you put food in them and then they magically heat up. So how do you think that this would have been accomplished? All right, so microwaves for... Um, data transmission, signal transmission are very strong line of sight kind of technology, right? Mm -hmm. You just point one microwave at another microwave and they can transmit data back and forth. Um, we have this a lot here in Southern California out in the desert where your towers are at great distances apart and there's no infrastructure under the ground or even on telephone poles to connect these sites together so they connect to each other via microwaves right very high powered long range and back in the 1980s this is how you got signals around these uh, very dense very tall cities chicago new york things like that so all of you know what what's happening is they're they're sending the microwave signal out from the studio to relay stations on top of the Hancock building and the Sears Tower. Now, to hijack this signal, my best guess is you would have to have your own microwave set up, a portable one, right? Because you have to be able to set yeah. this up somewhere, take it down without being caught. Now, how you can maneuver this kind of portable thing is kind of bizarre because a microwave takes a lot of juice, right? And they're typically rather large antennas like a really giant bongo drum is the best and way I can describe a microwave and, and, dish. And you're talking about like a, like a dish style antenna, right? Yes. Yes. It is yeah. a circle typically with a big canvas cover on it. So you can play drums on them if you want to. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> it's just a weird thing. Um, you also have to be really high up because that's where these things are broadcasting. You know, so these guys have to get on top of their own building, you know, and I'm guessing they're not on top of the station or the Sears Tower or the Hancock building because it sounds like your security would be higher there with all your transmission signals. And you would also just, yeah, need a ton of very specialized equipment, you know. I mean, it it, it seems like quite a feat to do outside of the buildings that this transmission signal is coming to and from so mm. hats off to the perpetrators for getting this done with whatever jerry rig system they had 
That was more enlightening than I thought it would be, man. Thanks for that. Thank you. I don't know if that was a compliment or an insult, <laughs> but but I'll take it as a compliment. It was a compliment. <laughs> if caught, the perpetrators would have faced a maximum penalty of $100,000 and or a year in jail. A similar incident happened a year and a half prior to this incident, in which an electrical engineer named John R. McDougall, using the pseudonym Captain Midnight, jammed the HBO satellite signal on Galaxy One during the airing of the film The Falcon and the Snowman in a protest of a recent rate hike. During this incident, the scheduled programming cut away as a message was displayed on the screen which read, quote, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime movie channel beware, end quote. McDougal was eventually caught. He had, he had made a rookie mistake by using an uncommon text generator program to display the text on screen, which was a clue that led the FCC investigators to his employer, Central Florida Teleport, which was a satellite uplink company in Ocala, Florida. McDougal was ultimately slapped with a $5,000 fine and one year of probation. One other similar incident happened in September of 1987, just two months before the Max Headroom incident. As dudes all across America were just trying to crank down in the privacy of their own homes while watching the Playboy channel, text suddenly appeared on the screen telling the Onanists to repent and find Jesus. Masturbators all across the country were furious and had to resort to finishing off by using the underwear section of the Sears catalog instead. The FBI was able to identify the hacker as a man named Thomas Haney, who was a technician employed by the Christian Broadcasting Network. Haney was subsequently convicted and sentenced to probation. In November of 2010, Reddit user Bpogue made a now-famous post on the subreddit IAMA with the heading, quote, I believe I know who was behind the Max Headroom incident that occurred in Chicago in 1987, end quote. In the post, he goes into a deep dive on two people he believed were behind the incident, and this post is still referenced in many podcasts and YouTube videos about the incident. However, just for the sake of time and sparing you all the boring details, he edited his post five years later in 2015, stating that the two individuals were formally ruled out as being responsible for the incident. As of the year of our Lord, 2023, the perpetrators of this crime have never been identified, and they still may be out there, somewhere in the ether, having never been brought to justice. So, fun little fact about the Max Headroom incident. It's got its own IMDB page, and I'm not really sure why, but it might have to do with the fact that it qualified for one simply because it it was aired on live TV. But IMDB describes it as, quote, illegal broadcast showing Max Headroom imposter doing nonsense things and obscenities shown over sports news and Doctor Who episode, which became cult phenomena as culprits were never captured, end quote. It's rated TV 14 under the genres of short, horror, and sci-fi, and has a user rating of 8.5 stars out of 10. In an article written on WGN's website on the 30th anniversary of the incident in November of 2017, Chuck Swirsky recalled, quote, My phone started exploding. It was a Sunday night and I had no clue what was going on, so it was a shock. I was completely baffled. Why me? Why insert Chuck Swirsky into this thing? I still don't understand. End quote. 
As to why Max Headroom may have been chosen as the character, Walter J. Podrazic from the Museum of Broadcast Communications offered his opinion. Quote, he would pop in, often the most inappropriate time, make a wry comment or be spying on somebody or what have you. Max Headroom was a truth teller. End quote. All right, folks. So now the question becomes how and why did this happen? As for the how, it's theorized that the culprit or culprits placed their dish antenna high above the city and overpowered the TV station's feeds, which were on their way to the receivers that would amplify them across the Chicago area. Contrary to popular belief, this was not a live broadcast. It was a pre-recorded tape, as evident by the fact that it jumps from the Max Headroom character in a seated position to him standing up and bending over without any transition. So it seems that this tape was recorded in a premeditated way, as opposed to what many people wrongfully believe, that it was a live video feed of a guy who had no idea what the fuck he was doing. Dr. Michael Marcus, who was at the time an assistant bureau chief in the FCC's Field Operations Bureau and its lead investigator, was an expert in the mechanics of TV hacking and radio transmission technology. He was also instrumental in catching the HBO hacker and the Playboy Channel hacker. According to Marcus, to find the signal hijacker, you must first find out the location of where the signal hijack took place, which means you must know the path that the signal was taking when it got hijacked. To spread their signals across a city, local TV networks first relay their signals from their studios to high-powered transmitters on top of tall buildings, which in this case was the John Hancock Building and the Sears Tower. The connection between the TV studios and the transmitter is called the Studio Transmitter Link, or STL. His theory is as follows. The hacker overpowered the microwaves of the studio transmitter link, which sat vulnerable to attack on a frequency that wouldn't have been hard to find, as they were being sent to the receivers on top of the John Hancock building and the Sears Tower. The pirates would have <clears throat> the pirates would have had to switch on their transmission equipment at a high enough location, most likely a high-rise apartment or the roof of one, at a place between the two studios and, and their downtown transmitters, somewhere on the north or northwest side of Chicago. From there, they could blast the skyscraper receivers with high-powered microwave frequencies, and by overriding the studio signals, they could trick the transmitters into sending out their own signal. Quote, I think the bad guy got close to the receiving end and just transmitted a signal that was received with a stronger strength than the more distant intended signal, end quote, said Marcus. According to Marcus, the perpetrators did not necessarily need any expensive or large equipment to accomplish this. Quote, new, the gear might have cost around $10,000, but would have been available used on the amateur radio market. There is surplus equipment sold with this capability. I don't think it needed a few briefcases. It did need a dish antenna, but if they got close enough to the STL receiver at the TV transmitter, then a direct TV size antenna might have been adequate. Marcus later said, quote, It had to be someone who knew the technology. Maybe a broadcast techie, but there were other techies who could figure it out also, end quote. In popular culture, the Max Headroom incident has influenced many things. From Jack Nicholson's Joker in the Batman movie to the plot for V for Vendetta. We want to read an excerpt from this short and sweet article written by Fenwick McKelvey 
who's an associate professor in information and communication technology policy at Concordia University, because he raises a lot of intriguing points about the incident. Quote, we're left to wonder, what was the point? The pranksters didn't use their ill-gotten attention to evangelize. The clip's boyish bum jokes epitomize the ambiguous politics of piracy. Was the interruption a protest against commercial culture or a crafty prank? The meaning is just noise, but ultimately the noise can be so compelling. We begin to imagine things as we stare into that TV static. A Max Headroom unwilling to sell corporate culture, a public broadcaster willing to bear ass, and pirates catching the airwaves. For a kid like me growing up online, the prank had all the ingredients of pirate lore. The 1985 Max Headroom movie portrays the character as an artificial intelligence gone rogue, devoted to fighting the subliminal advertising techniques deployed by its corporate masters. Soon after the movie's runaway success, Max had turned into just another celebrity appearing in Coke ads. But these soda-tossing TV pirates liberated the Max Headroom character itself, and turned Max into an actual pirate. The movie character and the crudely aesthetic knockoff merged into one. A perfect act of early electronic civil disobedience signaled piracy with a nascent cyberpunk flair inspiring generations of hackers to come. End of article. And with that, that brings us to the end of our story. In 1992, the five-year statute of limitations ran out on this crime, so even if identified, the perpetrator or perpetrators would not be able to be prosecuted. However, before we conclude our story, let's mention a certain person that makes the rounds on the internet, and it's someone who is often considered to be the top suspect in the case. Eric Fournier, born on September 2, 1967 in Bloomington, Indiana, was a punk rocker turned indie filmmaker and was known for his YouTube channel back in the early days of the website in the mid-2000s when he created a video series surrounding a character named Shea St. John, which was a puppet fashioned out of parts from a mannequin, a plastic mask, and wooden hands on sticks. She was described as having been hit by a train, which resulted in the loss of her arms and legs. Shea St. John had originally started as a blog on LiveJournal in 2003 before Eric Fournier created a dedicated YouTube channel for her on August 30th, 2006. So let's just roll a short clip from Shea St. John just so you know the style of video that we're talking about here. Shea St. John, St. Patty's Day, digital diarrhea download. Digital diarrhea. Digital diarrhea. Hey guys, do you know about my digital download made diarrhea here on the internet? Why don't you take a piece? A media shout out for Dakota Fanning fans. Uh, she's suing her mother for two pounds of diarrhea due to her mother's lack of ability to put her in more rape scenes in the Hollywood film she wants to be in. Thanks everyone who bid it on my haunted diarrhea Jeffrey download tape. Nobody bought that one, but thanks everybody for uh, bidding on my handy haunted video dialogue. A lot of people wanted it, but I did get 15,000 that I need. So next time I put it back on YouTube, please try to do some bidding because it's an actual haunted diarrhea media download Andy Griffith tape made off the internet. You will be surprised when you see it. So what we want is $15,000 for the digital download diarrhea media tape that stars Andy Griffith. And then just to sum up what the character is like, um, it's really bizarre. It's the editing and the videos are super frenetic and repetitive and almost hypnotic in a way. Um, I, I was watching some of the Shea St. John stuff last night 
And I found myself unable to turn it off despite not really enjoying it. Like I couldn't look away from it because it was kind of like hypnotic in a way. It was really weird. Go check it out if you're curious about it. Some people point out the similarities between the Max Headroom video and the unique style and humor of the Shea St. John videos and draw parallels between the two. However, it's likely that we'll never know for certain whether Fournier was involved in the Max Headroom incident as he passed away due to internal bleeding caused by his alcohol addiction in February of 2010. YouTube deleted his channel in 2017, but you can still find his content on re-upload channels. Despite the heavy, heavy similarities in style between the Max Headroom intrusion and Fournier's videos, there's no evidence that Fournier had any knowledge of broadcasting back in the 80s or even access to such equipment. It's also alleged by one of his longtime friends that the only known time that Fournier ever went to Chicago was to see a Pixies concert. I love the Pixies, man. Do you like them? You know, I'm not super familiar with the Pixies other than I do know the name because it's just one of those big bands that you just know the name to. Can, they've got, can, can they've got a, some bangers. Yeah. Can, can you name one or two? Uh, Debaser, Monkey Gone to Heaven, Havelina. There's many. Cool. I gotta check them out then. Yep. All right, man, are you ready to talk about our theories and what we believe happened in this instance? Sure. Which one would you like to start off, you or me? Well, I, I would like to know how you believe this was done, because um, I think that's kind of important to understand why it was done. So I, I'm really happy with the fact that a lot of my theories on how it was accomplished uh, coincided with the FCC investigator, you know, mm -hmm. uh, by, by intercepting, you know, a, a line of sight tra transmission. But I did not realize that you could buy cheap used parts to get this done. You know, like, like mm -hmm. you said, new that's 10 grand worth of equipment and lots of it. But he also said <laughs> that he doesn't even think it would take more than a couple briefcases to get the stuff up to a roof. And you would only need a small, uh, dish network, uh, TV antenna, which I don't know if you yeah. remember when we all used to have those on our roofs. They're not the direct TV antennas. Yeah. Direct TV dish network. They're the same. Time. Right. 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 Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's very interesting that you could MacGyver something together on the roof of a skyscraper or just a tall apartment building mm -hmm. and, you know, intercept a, a network broadcast signal. Yeah, I think this I think this guy was definitely some kind of techie. Um oh, who yeah. understood the technology. Nobody just just fucking goes down to their local radio shack and asks the guy like, "Oh, how am I going to broadcast? How am I going to hijack a broadcast?" You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, and this is before the age of things like Google and YouTube. Like you can't just look this up on your own. Like you would have to go to school, you know, trade school. Yeah be in the profession for a long time, something to gain all this knowledge. Yeah, I actually, I don't think that any specific names that were mentioned in this story were the actual perpetrators because, I mean, as for Eric Fournier, I don't think that he would have had the technical know-how to to get this done. But I do see the the way people compare his videos to the Max Headroom incident video. They are similar in a way, but... I don't well, really see it. Maybe 
maybe he just based his character off of the Max. Yeah, Hedrum exactly. Incident. Exactly. He could have been inspired by the yeah. Max Headroom incident. So to me, it's it's a nothing burger. Um, and like a like I said burger. too, his, you know what I mean, man. But yeah. like um, his friend was talking about how he had never been to Chicago other than to go see a concert. So I, I just I don't believe that it was him. Um, yeah, like I I think that these guys, whoever did this, is still unidentified. Um, I don't think that we're ever gonna know for sure. Yeah. All right. So. So we got a pretty good idea of how it was done. We're pretty certain we'll never know who it was done. So the last burning question is why? Yeah. So, um, well, before we get into why, I was thinking like how old this guy must have been. Because what I would want to know is if Clutch Cargo was a cartoon that was reran throughout the decades that could have been seen by a younger viewer. Or if Clutch Cargo was this niche kind of flash in the pan cartoon that was only around in the late 50s, early 60s, because that could pin his age as like being born like the early 50s. I mean, all the way down to even the 40s. He could be a little bit older. But he could be, but but his the humor, show. the humor, the humor show, the humor itself is very immature. So it's yeah, kind of like, like almost well, like a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I still have the same kind of sense of humor as I had when I was a teenager. But so it, it begs the question for me, could this guy have been older than we think? And he just had like a, a really weird sense of humor or some kind of like vendetta against WGN? Because I think that his original target was going to be only WGN, but he was like he ran into some kind of technical problem where the audio feed wasn't coming through on the WGN hijacking. Yeah. And then the WGN engineering nerds were able to bump him off the air and he lost his chance, basically. So I think that he then resorted to the WTTW broadcast later in the night. He probably yeah. knew that there would be nobody at the station to stop him. And so also you have to think that people watching Doctor Who they, it's kind of like the people who like that show really fucking like it. So he probably also knew that people were going to be taping it as well. So it's a good that's, point. That, that's another way to make sure that his, his like a uh, message, if you could call it a message would, would be etched in concrete. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that he had, he might've had some sort of beef with, with WGN. Um, as for what that beef was, man, um, it could have been as simple as because it stand, it stood for the world's greatest newspaper and he felt that their arrogance had to be stopped, man. Yeah, that's that's a very valid point, you know, or, you know, when you work for a big company, you know, as just a techie or a lower life mm -hmm. form and you have these <laughs> managers upon bosses and all these heads up the corporate ladder that all get to dictate what you do and you think they're dumb, dumber than yeah. you are. Yeah, yeah, it gives you a little complex sometimes. Well, I got to say, like, when I was a kid, I kind of had a beef with WGN, too, because as you know, like, where we grew up, it's about the furthest place you could possibly live in the continental United States away from Chicago. And yet 
every time I wanted to play Nintendo, I had to change it to channel three and it would be fucking WGN on the TV. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, why the fuck is there a Chicago station playing in Southern California? And I remember just being like, why do, why are they so arrogant that they think that we care about what's going on in Chicago? It could have been, it could have been somebody like that, man. Just somebody who felt that, uh, you know, WGN had to be stopped. They had to be put yeah. back in their place, you know? Yeah, this is very true. And he sure did a great job of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so I included the article from that associate professor um, because he said something that kind of clicked in my brain. And it was when he brought up the fact that the Max Headroom character was originally sort of like a like a hero character almost like a vigilante that was trying to fight against corporations and subliminal advertising and all that. But then by the end of the character's popularity in like a few years after he appeared, um, he kind of became the very thing that the character was supposed to not be, which was like, <laughs> like a corporate shill. Like he yeah. literally became the, the face of the Coca-Cola company for, for a year yeah. or so. Just, and just a corporate advertising puppet. Yeah, and so I th I found it kind of interesting that the character kind of came full circle, you know. It went from being this vigilante type character that was fighting against corporations and then it it evolved into this basically the face of a corporation of uh, shilling products basically. And then it came full circle back to vigilante fighting against corporations by becoming this airwave pirate. You know what I mean? It's kind oh, yeah. of poetic in a way. I don't know if you call it poetic or ironic, but I no, thought I that like the, poetic. Just... You know, this that this guy had to wear some kind of mask to protect his identity, and I think he just chose the perfect mask. You know, now now that you say that, I think you know that was absolutely intended. Yeah. And then, I mean, the main question that we have here is why? Because the me if he had a message, it wasn't clear. But to me, I don't know if if there was a clear message that was intended to be told on this on this on this pirate broadcast. But it's kind of like a piece of art in a way where you're supposed to look at it and kind of come up with your own interpretation of it. It's not supposed to tell you a, a black and white message necessarily, but it's supposed to get your brain thinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that was probably the intent here. It was either that or he had some sort of beef against WGN. Yeah. It, yeah. I don't think there's any specific message intended for the, the residents of Chicago or wherever else we were picking up this signal. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it must have just been a, I hate these people, so I'm going to throw a wrench in their works. And it didn't quite go off the way he planned, but he still got that pre-recorded tape out there, which, you know, it specifically poked fun at WGN and, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, you know. Um, well, let's let's let. Yo, sorry, sorry. Go on. Yeah, it 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 had nothing to do with with the, the, the second channel that, that he hijacked at all. Yeah. So I guess I would ask you, man, if you had a beef against a television station, let's say you had a beef against like KUSI or something, 
and you had the know-how to do this and you also had the the confidence that you could 100% get away with it would you do something like this mm, no i'd like to think i'd put in a little more effort into maybe sending out a message that's worthwhile instead of mm -hmm. just coming off as like a wasted college student just having more fun than you know what to do with right see to me i i it's easy to look at this video and and say that he either had a beef against wgn or he just wanted to do some wild antics for fun but to me, it's almost like it falls in between the two where it's almost like a work of art that was not meant to provide a clear message. It was not intended to necessarily be as profane as possible because he could have done, done far worse than what he did if he wanted to just True. be, you know, profane for being profane, the sake of yeah. being profane. This is very um, true with, with, with no one to stop you you could have killed someone killed yourself and all kinds of well he could have things well no i'm not talking about that i mean he could have like he could have bent over in front of the camera and like spread his ass cheeks if he wanted to oh, be man. Dude, dude, like my really mind went fucking way bad. farther when you said could could do way worse <laughs> i was thinking <laughs> way worse like like anyone watching this would be scarred for life yeah so it almost makes me just think that uh, without calling yeah. it art, it kind of was in a way, in, in no, my opinion. I, I really like that. Like theory. some perform performance art. Yeah. What whether he intended it to be art or not, it's it's definitely a a good way of looking at it. You know, with with the lore of Max Headroom coming around full circle. You know. Yeah, I, I just that aspect of it is it kind of. It makes me appreciate the story of, of the Max Headroom incident that much more. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else you want to add to this discussion, man? Um, I don't think so. This was a fun episode to record. Uh, probably one of the more bizarre ones. Um, I highly recommend any of the listeners out there to watch the clip of the Max Headroom incident if you've never seen it before. So you can really, really get a grip of how just bizarre this whole incident really was. Yeah, I concur, man. All right, man. Do you have any shout outs, apologies or clarifications to make? I do have a shout out on behalf of my dad. I told him we were recording an episode uh, from Chicago. Not, not we're in Chicago, but an episode based in Chicago. And he said, do a shout out to Kuma's Corner. It is a heavy metal bar and grill with apparently very delicious hamburgers. And my dad's been there more than once. So shout out to Kuma's Corner in Chicago, Illinois. Right on, man. Yeah. So if you're in the Chicago area, go go check that out. All right, so I want to give a shout out to the guy in the Max Headroom mask, if he's still out there, because he didn't do anything wrong. He's the hero that Chicago deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him, because he can take it. Because he's not our hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. All right, man, I think it's time to get out of here. Like sands through the hourglass, so too are the minutes of our podcast. But don't fret, dear listener. We'll be back again to breathe new life into an old mystery next time. Remember, folks, the truth is out there, somewhere in the ether. 
and through our powers combined, we'll solve that some bitch once and for all. This is Super Mystery Bros. said is completely true though so i know (laughs) i know i just it was so fucking bizarre working for sears because um it was like all right so it's been over 10 years since i worked there but even back then everything felt like it was stuck in the 80s and 90s um, yeah, like they just refused to change course. They refused to do anything well, that could potentially. Yeah, yeah it was Fuck you, dumb. Siri. But but they would they were around like the longest. Yep. Yeah. Just you know the the Sears catalog, man. That 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 was the first Amazon. You didn't have to go to the store. Yeah. You could order something from the Sears catalog, including a heroin starter kit. I read about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all illegal drugs all started out as this like miracle cure for everything, including heroin. And so when that was legal and you didn't even need a prescription, you know, you could straight up get a heroin starter kit with like the syringe and the rubber band all came in like a little case and everything. It was right in the Sears catalog, man, black and white. That's fucked up. Yeah. Actually, the Sears catalog was like uh, the first toilet paper. Like people would put it, it put it, put the Sears catalog in their outhouse, and while they're taking a shit, they can read it and then like tear off pages and wipe their ass with it. <laughs> I don't know if it was officially marketed as such, but it was kind of like a a nice business move, you know, because people could just sit down and be like, "Oh, I want that," and then tear off the page and then wipe their ass with it. advertising (laughs) while you shit (laughs) yeah dude Dude, i'm surprised no i'm surprised nobody came up with with something like that for toilet paper like tearing off sheets of toilet paper that have like ads on them dude that's it's gonna be right around the corner now (laughs) now that you said something (laughs) it's fucking brilliant why has nobody thought of that yet i'm sure people have thought of that yet you I just think tear it should, off. Yeah. You just, it's, it's like you, it comes in those packs, you know, where you tear off the individual sheets and then there's like a Mountain Dew advertisement on it or some shit. KFC, yeah. fucking McDonald's. I'm loving it. 